welcome to the Master of Divinity podcast. Way back in the first session, you'll recall we learned about God by listening to the words of Jesus. Jesus described God in a number of ways, yet there remained unmistakable patterns in our inquiry. In this episode, I want to turn to Scripture once more and ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit doing? If you have a pencil and paper, uh, perhaps you can note what the Spirit's doing in each passage, even uh, just one verb to describe it. If you're driving, you're just going to have to listen and focus on the road. I'll begin with Genesis 1. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. From Psalm 139, Where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. This is from Isaiah 59. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, who is on you, will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children, and on the lips of their descendants, from this time on and forever, says the Lord. And from Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. From John 14. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. From Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Obviously, the Spirit is very busy. From the first moment of creation, moving over the deep, the Spirit is moving through the world God made. And as you heard in these and many more passages, the Spirit anoints leaders, renews the earth, pursues us, animates covenants, leads us where we ought to go, initiates us into the body of Christ, speaks through us, seeks justice, jogs our memory, births the church, reaches all people, and intercedes for us, saving us, and meets us at the last. The first and obvious question, then, is how is the Holy Spirit different from God's Spirit? And like the old joke, uh, the answer is yes. Like the second person of the Trinity, fully human and fully divine, we've entered the realm of mystery. For Jews, as an example, there can be no distinction between Spirit and God. They are one, as God is one. 
The spirit, then, is no more than metonymy, one thing called by a name that it's related to. Think uh, Ottawa when we mean the federal government, or the White House when we mean the executive branch of the U.S. government. We could simply accept this reasoning that God and the Spirit are one and the same, except Jesus and St. Paul have other ideas. Listen again to two of our introductory passages, uh, John 14, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've said to you. And from Romans 8, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Notice that the Father sends the Spirit to remind believers of Jesus' words. Likewise, Paul argues that the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. It is easy to see why the early church began to draw a distinction between God and Spirit, all the while maintaining a strict one-God policy we call monotheism. Before we leave this topic, I should note that a song of faith seems to straddle the fence. It says, We sing of God the Spirit, who from the beginning has swept over the face of creation, animating all energy and matter, and moving in the human heart. We sing of the Spirit, who speaks our prayers of deepest longing, who enfolds our concerns and confessions, transforming us and the world. The inference here is that God the Spirit is transcendent, moving over the face of the deep, and the Spirit is imminent, dwelling deep within us, alive in our immediate experience. In some ways, it is a simple solution to a complex problem, but it may also be muddying the waters. So what's the answer? Well, let's, let's begin at the beginning. The Hebrew, ruah, meaning spirit, was hovering over the waters present at the moment of creation. Ruah is also breath, a connection that is similarly present in Greek, pneuma is the word, and Latin, spiritus. The breath-spirit connection exists in a number of languages, pointing to a primal sense that our spirit is connected to the Spirit through breath. God is within us. And the indwelling continued. Jesus insists that when trouble comes, the Spirit will give us the words we need. This theme arrives in Scripture in the context of a struggle between church and synagogue, persecution under Rome, and within a community trying to forge an identity. Spirit of the Lord anoints, blessing God's prophets with courage and purpose. The Spirit leads Jesus into the desert, and the temptation narrative is simply a series of choices meant to define Jesus. Even in death, the Spirit leads the faithful to rest. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are also there. There is no escaping the Spirit, much in the way we cannot stop the desire to breathe. And this extends to all of creation, blessing and renewing the earth. 
You may recall from the first episode of this course the idea that even an omnipotent God cannot act against the rules God set. Quote, when we take away their breath, spirit, they die and they return to the dust. We are mortal, we return to the earth, but when you send your spirit, you renew the face of the earth, according to scripture. Moving on, what can we say specifically about Christian beginnings and how the Spirit creates the church? The obvious place to start is Acts 2 and the passage we read to mark the birth of the church. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Wind and flame arrive, using the Spirit breath that God provides to speak the message of the gospel to the whole world assembled in Jerusalem. If Jesus is the founder and St. Paul the architect, then the Holy Spirit brings the church to birth. The Spirit used all the attributes we've described so far, testimony, identity, relentless pursuit, to animate the church. A Song of Faith goes further, saying, We are each given particular gifts of the Spirit for the sake of the world, God calls all followers of Jesus to Christian ministry. Following St. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 8, believers are given the gifts of the Spirit, providing that the work of the church might proceed. It says, To one is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. You can hear uh, an echo of Reformation theology. Luther read this and didn't understand it to mean various types of priests, but the priesthood of all believers. He believed that these gifts were distributed by the Spirit to the whole church. Wesley went even further to say that we are mutually accountable for the way we use these gifts, and that in addition to weekly worship, we should gather to discuss the state of our souls and the way we have honored our gifts. The goal was sanctification, being made perfect with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, perfection is mostly unattainable, and a song of faith speaks of this too. The church has not always lived up to its vision, it says. It requires the Spirit to reorient it, helping it to live an emerging faith while honoring tradition, challenging it to live by grace rather than entitlement. You might call these very churchy sins, managing change, helping us to get over ourselves. 
Again, it is the Spirit's unique role to reorient us, to help us to overcome what holds us back from God's intention for us. I'm going to conclude uh, where we began this journey long ago in Scripture uh, and share again from a song of faith. The Spirit breathes revelatory power into Scripture, bestowing upon it a unique and normative place in the life of the community. The beginning of our look at the history of the Christian church began with Scripture, uh, words that set our story in motion. We looked at the Bible in five episodes and specifically how the church is nurtured by ancient words. And finally, ethics, uh, the way of life we follow, defined by our experience of God based in Scripture. All roads lead to this place. A Song of Faith reminds us that it is the Spirit that helps us to read and understand, providing the lens through which words become Scripture. Karl Barth said that preachers preach with a, a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And that may well be true, but it is the Spirit that provides the spark, the Spirit that allows a believer to translate the words on the page into their own life. You might say, then, that Scripture only makes sense in context, and that the Scriptures, while eternal, are always read at a specific moment in time. God is revealed to us in our circumstances and based on our life experience. The way that this remains authentic and avoids becoming narcissistic is through the work of the Spirit. The Bible speaks to each of us, but it's not about us. It reveals what we need to see about ourselves and the world, but it doesn't make us the center of the story. Christ is the center. We are the followers, and the Bible speaks to every age through the Spirit. And thank God for that. We will conclude our look at systematics here and look forward to the next course in practical theology, specifically worship. It will be about both why and how, with a few examples thrown in for good measure. As always, thank you for joining me.